All right, welcome to Irreligiosophy. Uh, I have lost count of the number of podcasts we have. This is podcast in the teens, maybe twenty teens, maybe. I don't know. I, I stopped counting uh, after we hit three. We are going to try to make this uh, video that we watched interesting for our audience. <laughs> did it put you to sleep? It tried. It, it, it did nearly its absolute best. I mean, the, the subject matter was interesting. It was why we believe in gods. And this guy, we'll, we'll have a link on the, the webpage. This guy theorized that... Um, Belief in gods and the supernatural is a byproduct of, of some cognitive mechanisms that were designed for other purposes. And I love how he says, uh, he makes fun of Richard Dawkins and other people for using these terms like they're supernatural agents, but he, of course, uses the term design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating, fascinating to to actually look at the subject matter. But I got to tell you, that guy is not a good Present presenter presentation whatever. Yeah, if you guys don't want to watch it, it's an hour long. Uh, he's not a very good lecturer, um, so we'll we'll summarize it for you, and hopefully we can squeeze an hour of summary out of an hour lecture. It's going to be pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it'll be a lot easier for us because uh, if he pulls up a slide, he just reads off of the slide and then continues forward. We're actually going to expound on some of these things. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go into it a little bit more. And he, I believe he was either a psychologist or a psychiatrist because a lot of the stuff he was saying is right out of, like, Psych 101. Yeah, see, that was that was my initial thought as well, is this guy's got to be some sort of psych major. So his, uh, his main thesis is that we have evolved certain mechanisms, um, and they're actually uh, kind of hijacked by other things. Uh, the example he gave was, remember the Big Mac? Yep. Um, who loves, you know... Cola products and Big Macs. Um, I don't like a Big Mac, actually. I don't uh, either. I, that, I despise McDonald's. I think it tastes horrible. That special sauce is ridiculous. If it didn't have the special sauce, I think I'd like the Big Mac a lot better. Oh, come on, Charlie. We all know you like special sauce. I, um, so he thinks that uh, we've evolved adaptations <laughs> for things that are rare. Uh, at least rare during the conditions uh, under which we evolved. So... You know, sugar was very hard to find. Uh, fats, uh, lean game meats. Um, so we evolved tastes for these things. Uh, now that we have it in quantity, um, our big problem now is that we are too fat. Yeah, um, obesity is yeah, yeah one of our major problems. Uh, it's been suggested that this next generation of children will be the first generation of children in a couple hundred years where the lifespan, the average expected life expectancy, will be less than that of their parents, primarily because of obesity. You know, I've never actually heard that, but it does make sense, and it's awful fascinating. I mean, I take a look at a, a lot of uh, the children around my family and such, and they're all little fatties compared to, uh, compared to us growing up. I mean, I can remember as a child, the only time I ever got sweets or anything like that is... When I was sneaking it down at school or on special holidays like Easter and such, and I mean, the only time we ever went to fast food was on our birthday. Yeah, I remember when I was maybe thirteen, fourteen, biking seven miles on my ten speed to buy, you know, some comics and a couple candy bars with my allowance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a fourteen exactly. mile round trip. I think I burned it off. Well, I don't know if you deserve that candy bar. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly, I mean, that is 
the mentality and the livelihood that, that you and I were raised. And now we have people who back out of their garage to go down to the mailbox to mail things and then drive back in. Yeah, it's a great scene from Gods Must Be Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Lady backs up, gets the mailbox back in. It's fantastic. Anyway, his idea is that um, these cognitive mechanisms are just the same as these uh, other adaptations, right? Uh, so one of them is decoupled cognition. So it allows us to um, take our cognition, uh, our thought processes, and decouple them from our brain. So we think about someone who, for example, isn't there. Uh, we picture what they are thinking, or we imagine a conversation, or we have a conversation we didn't particularly like, and so we go over it in our heads and, and imagine what could have been different, and, and that requires imagining uh, what they would say differently as well. Um, this ability of, to decouple our cognition from our brains and have a conversation with someone who isn't there, it actually allows us to have these complex social interactions with people who aren't present, um, and you can see where this is going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, his his example is that he had a friend who was still talking to somebody who had died a while back, and he was still talking to him. And in all honesty, when, when he said this, it kind of made me sit back and think about my own religious history, and I can see exactly what he's talking about, because in, in my mind, I would sit there, and it would be pretty much just like having a conversation with God or an imaginary figure. I would sit there, and I would think, okay, well, this is what is on my plate right now. Where do I think I should put things? And I would just run through the possibilities. And, of course, in my mind, this was praying to me. But, I mean, I can see where he's going with this. Sure. Um, it's a very small step from uh, having a conversation with someone that we know and having a conversation with someone who we merely believe in. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. Another one, he says, hyperactive agency detection. Um, his example is that we uh, quite often mistake a shadow for a burglar, but we never mistake a burglar for a shadow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this helps if you're being chased by predators, for example, right? You hear a twig snap um, or a branch break, and you're off to the races because um, that might not be a squirrel uh, or you know just the wind. It could be... Uh, um, a predator, and if you mistake that, your life will, you know, better to run 50 times and be fooled than uh, not run once and be and, eaten. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of funny because I actually dealt with this particular detection agency just yesterday. I was uh, working, and when I work, I have my headphones on, and this particular song came on. It's that one, uh, If You Want to Destroy My Sweater, I can't remember uh, right. what it is. But you know how in the beginning they just Weezer. kind of Weezer, yeah, where where they just kind of talk where they're like, "Hey, bud." Well, I have my headphones on and I'm sitting there working, and all of a sudden, out of my right ear, I hear that loud, clear as day, "Hey, bud," and I can't tell you how much I snapped to attention and turned <laughs> to my right. It just kind of shocked me. But I mean, that's exactly what this type of hyperactive agency detection is is about. Right. We we tend to mistake natural processes for. Um... Uh, the activity of of thinking agents or um, other things that that aren't natural, right? We uh, yeah. uh, and that that's clearly to a selective advantage. Um, 
at the heart of natural selection. If you're not doing this, uh, you certainly will not reproduce. <laughs> yeah. Your genes will not make it too far up in the evolutionary yeah. chain. So third is intuitive reasoning. And uh, this is very interesting because we have this sort of idea of common sense, right? Um, but the whole history of science is overcoming that idea of common sense. <laughs> I mean, uh, certainly quantum mechanics and general relativity are the farthest, farthest things that you can get from uh, common sense. So we, we have this idea that that common sense trumps things, that, that our common sense is right. Um, and very often it's wrong. Now, in in most situations that we uh, that are not abstract or deal with mathematics, uh, I, I believe that our common sense is actually pretty good. So, so I should say that um, at slow speeds, um, you know, <laughs> uh, objects that have lots of mass, our common sense is pretty good. But again, our common sense for years thought that um, you know, different objects of different mass would fall at different rates. Yeah. And the only way we know the difference is that we experimented and found out that wasn't true. Uh, so, so science actually overturns common sense quite often. Which is probably the reason why so many people have an aversion to science, at least in my opinion. Right. Because if you have something that you have accepted in your own mind, for years, probably your entire life, and then you have science coming up telling you something different, it's really, in a lot of ways, going to piss you off a little bit because uh, I think in a lot of people it makes them feel almost stupid. Yep, and you tend not to believe it because of that feeling. Yeah. Um, how often have you heard, uh, science says that nothing plus time gives everything, right? And it's like this um, idea that, well... That's totally absurd. <laughs> Clearly, all these so-called smart scientists are, are absolutely wrong. Clearly, there had to be a pre-existent God, you know, as if uh, an amazingly complex, um, amazingly powerful being always existing is somehow better than a quantum fluctuation producing things, you know. Um, yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. But, you know, uh, his idea is that uh, intuitive reasoning um, is paramount in most people, and that religious ideas are minimally counterintuitive. So um, the, he says that they're uh, the optimal compromise between the interesting and the expected. Uh, they're attention arresting, and so so they're they're memorable. And, and it's true. I mean, um, God is simply a human being, right? Um, just stronger and better and uh, more powerful and. Um, but, but otherwise, he's just like us, right? Even Jesus. Yeah. It was just like us, except maybe a little divine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, when he was talking, it, it kind of made me think of Achilles from the Iliad. Basically, you have this, these people looking up to somebody that they would like to be. Somebody who's a great warrior, whose uh, Kleos is going to outlast him, who has great teammates. I mean, you basically have this this concept of a hero, somebody you would aspire to be, and that's exactly what what this is telling me, is God is nothing more than a hero that people look up to and think, well, he'll save me when I need it, and I can aspire to be good for him or like him. Right, minimally counterintuitive. I mean, we, we have this idea that um, we have a parent from whom we, we expect certain obligations, and they, their job is to protect us and take care of us and help us in time of, times of need. Uh, and so it's just a very small step from your 
father or your tribe leader or your king or your emperor to a god who does exactly the same thing. So then he goes on to talk about uh, supernatural templates and, and these, these counterintuitive physical properties or biology or psychology. Um, they always involve the attribution of human mental states. So, you know, a rock falling down and uh, hitting you on the head, your first, <laughs> your, your first inclination is to kick the rock. Now, clearly the rock, you know, meant to harm you. Um, and children are, are amazing at this, right? And he says this, you know, what, what, are, what are rocks for? You know, you ask a kid. And they say, well, they're there for animals to scratch themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said that, and I'm like, wow, that wouldn't have even entered my mind. Yeah. But kids, it's like a common answer. What are birds for? They're there to sing. You know, They always um, they imbue this purpose. Uh, he called it promiscuous teleology. There's this, this overarching purpose for everything. Um, and uh, clearly, clearly in kids, that, that's, uh, that happens. Um, if they don't know, they'll make something up. Yeah, and I mean, anybody who's been around a small child has seen this for themselves. I mean, children are renowned for their imagination. And the funny thing I always see with children is parents are constantly, well, some parents anyway, are constantly saying, <clears throat> you shouldn't have imaginary friends, pay attention to what's in the real world. And they kind of pigeonhole children into this imaginary friend, which is religion. Right, well, what, right. <laughs> I love how they say don't have an imaginary friend and the whole time they're going to church every Sunday and praying every night. <laughs> <laughs> that dude ain't there. Yeah, um, you can see how this, uh, this, this promiscuous teleology, um, this imbuing kind of purpose and, <clears throat> and reason causes and effects into these, these natural objects that isn't there uh, could morph itself into a religion. All right, so, so what you said about expecting from God, like what you would expect from a fatherly figure or a tribe's leader, um, that sort of thing, um, the thought that went through my head right at that point was, this is exactly why people assume that when you become an atheist or you stop believing, that it's because you expected something from God and he did not give it to you. That's the most common, you see in movies, <laughs> that's the most common, and actually I think nearly the only mechanism for atheism that I've seen in the movies or on TV. You are angry at God, you're mad at God because you didn't keep a bargain, or uh, uh, you know, a drunk driver killed your parent, you know, yeah, therefore you're, you're angry. angry. And, uh, and I mean, it's how absolutely... How could God do that? How could he do it? And it's absolutely hilarious, but that makes perfect sense with what we just discussed here, because... If you are expecting that sort of relationship, it doesn't get given to you, then I would assume that this is the majority of the reason why people would fall away from religion. And it's actually hilarious, because I get it with my family all the time. In fact, my mother says it to me probably once a month, where she says, I know you say you don't believe, but deep down you do believe. And it, it's, it all goes back to, I think, I really think, my family believes that I'm just angry with God because he didn't give me what I wanted. And personally, that's kind of a slight, because I look at it and think, well, A, you were either saying that I am not intelligent enough to come to this conclusion through my own intellectual reasoning, or B, I'm childish enough that I'm going to throw a tantrum in front of this great supernatural being. 
it's it's really a slight to my personality. And my, it, it's reassuring to them because in that scenario, God still exists. You're just pissed off at him. That that's true. See, it makes them feel better. Um, it's kind of what Pete was saying last week that we um, our parents believe through us, and it's yeah. uh, it's almost catastrophic if they stop believing because um, that's how they participate in it. Um, so this way, they kind of maintain that you still believe. Um, interestingly enough. I do not know a single atheist who arrived at his or her atheism through that mechanism. Never. Neither do I. I know dozens of atheists personally, and I have no idea of anyone who got really angry at, at God, and uh, that's why they left, you know, or stopped believing. Um, it never, <laughs> never happens. Um, but that's the only mechanism you ever see in the movies or, or on TV or in the media. Or even with my family. And I, and I mean, I'll admit, I'm kind of bad at this, because when my mom says something like that, I know it's for her general well-being, and so I just kind of smile and, and nod with her. And I mean, sure, if I was a hard ass, I would just tell her to stuff it, but I understand that when she believes that I'm just pissed off at God, that means there is a chance that I will turn around and I will see the light and I will return to heaven, in a sense. Yeah. I, I just tell my mom, mom, deep down inside, I actually don't believe. <laughs> <laughs> there is no deeper down inside than that. that that's, that's just it. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if they believe me or not. So we were talking about that attachment mechanism, right? Where, where you see the father and, and, and your parents, and they take care of you. And that, that actually is the fundamental caretaking system in mammals. And he, he um, mentioned this as well. Uh, we imprint ourselves uh, on the parents and vice versa, I think. Um, we attach ourselves to the children and children attach to the parents. And we need that. If we didn't have that attachment mechanism, uh, mammals wouldn't survive. Uh, they're so vulnerable f for their first few weeks and months and, and often years uh, that uh, without that attachment, you know, if they just gave birth and walked away, <laughs> we'd rapidly go extinct. <laughs> yeah, very rapidly. I mean, some mammals, they don't even, they aren't even born with their eyes open. So, I mean, it's just a mechanism. Right. Um, that, that caretaking mechanism, that, that uh, instinct. Um, he actually mentioned we have fossil evidence as old as 1.7 million years uh, ago that uh, in the hominids um, that this female had vitamin A poisoning and, and uh, she actually had new bone growth. And there's no way that she would survive without someone, because of the amount of pain that, that's involved in that uh, disease, someone had to bring her food uh, and, and water, water and take care of her while she's doing that. So Protect it's, it's ancient. Yeah, that, that protection mechanism is absolutely ancient. And again, it's minimally counterintuitive to say that, well, if this guy's taking care of me, then um, clearly uh, the gods um, are giving us game to hunt and plants to eat uh, and a river to drink. Um, gods are taking care of us. Minimally counterintuitive. Which is, it's kind of funny because, uh, I mean, it all comes down to Xenophanes saying, well, if horses dream, they would dream of horse-like gods. And I mean, it's the same reason why we get black Jesuses or uh, in the Hindu... Except uh, for Egypt, where they had, like, owl-headed and jackal-headed gods. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will just point out that Egypt rocks. Egypt is cool, definitely. They They don't... They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> They're just awesome. 
Um, but he mentioned that children will spontaneously invent the concept of God without any adult interference. And that's true. I mean, it's, it's um, not a large leap. Well, it, it all comes down to the imaginary friends. I mean, uh, I see it in uh, the little girl right now. She has imaginary friends that she calls her girls, and she's even got four of them that she's named. And it, it's great to watch her blame what she does on the girls and say, they did it, not oh, me. Yeah. And it's just one more step to say, oh, well, this good thing happened in my life because God did it. Right, not me. Right, and I, I oh, I have this this sort of obligation to <clears throat> a god or a supreme being. And so, you know, that, that's a fascinating <clears throat> point because always growing up, my my parents would always say that uh, that everything that we earned is due to God's grace. Yeah. So basically, even even memorizing in school was because God helped us yep. to memorize <clears throat> those things, and it's it's just very fascinating because. That was a, a mindset I was in for a very long time, up until I actually reached adulthood, left high school, and started traveling the world and uh, discerning things for myself. That was the mindset I was in. And then I started to realize, well, wait a minute. It, does that make me completely powerless? Obviously, I'm not powerless. I can do things on my own. And so the twist in the mind started shifting back to, well, I am the one doing all of the work here. Therefore, I am the one that should receive the credit. Yeah, that idea that we owe everything to God, all of our accomplishments, everything, that's kind of embodied in the idea that um, aliens came down and, and built the pyramids or showed the Egyptians how to build the pyramids. It's fundamentally denigrating to uh, humanity um, to say that we're not capable of doing this for ourselves. Yeah. Um, that, that religious idea um, that we have to have help from an outside agency or, or intervention um, or everything that we do we owe to the grace of God is is fundamentally denigrating um, and insulting um, to the capabilities of unassisted humanity. Well, I mean, this it, it goes back to the Greeks even. The Greeks developed a steam engine. They were one step away from doing something. It took us almost 16, 1800 years later to accomplish. Yep. And do you think it was because the Greeks actually believed Zeus was up there, or was it because of their own cognitive processes that right. brought them to that point? Right. Well, it was Jesus helping them along. Oh, of course, before <laughs> yeah. they'd even heard of Jesus. So so this uh, this childhood belief in imaginary friends, I mean, it, it shows that religion's the path of least resistance. Uh, you go from the imaginary friends around you to the imaginary friend above you. Um, the difficult part is rejecting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the reason why it's so difficult is because it's something that is in you since your childhood. I mean, this is the one last imaginary friend you have kept around for all this yeah. time. And it's comforting. I mean, it's comforting. My, my grandmother always used to say, you know, no matter what kind of difficulties we had, uh, God has a plan. You know, it's, um, don't worry. He'll never let you suffer beyond, beyond that which you, you can, can take. take. Yeah. Um, Tell that to people who are being tortured, or um, the Jews in the Holocaust are being starved slowly to death. Uh, no problem. It's all part of God's plan. <laughs> Again, it's insulting. All right, moving on. He um, he says that uh, that a belief in a form of life separate from the body, sort of the, this dualism that he also said. You know, um, the children are, are casual dualists. They they just accept that 
there is something special about humans that that uh, isn't present in uh, inanimate objects. So at at five months, if you have like a, a box and the little baby sitting there, and the box moves by itself, so you have a little magnet underneath the table, and you move the box, the baby will startle. <laughs> <laughs> now it's tough to say whether. <laughs> Whether that is just you know being scared because something rapidly moved, but it is sort of evidence that they weren't expecting it. Um, that they, at even five months old, they they believe that humans can move around. They're not startled by human movement for the most part. Well, I think the one thing you missed on that is he said the box was actually shaped like a human, and so they had the this box was shaped. I thought that was the whole point was that it was a box and the box moved and it was unnatural. I could have sworn he was pointing out that the box was shaped like a human. The child saw the box, saw it was an inanimate object and it wasn't supposed to move. And then when it did move, it startled him. And then through that cognition, I believe. Why that would it be it shaped like a human? I don't know. I was, <laughs> I was sitting there trying to figure out how they got the arms to move in the box, what but they the have someone hiding it. <laughs> I may have heard it wrong, but I thought that's what he was talking about. And I'm sitting there going, why is the box shaped like a human? <laughs> All right. I missed that entirely. Uh, well, uh, anyway. I might have missed it entirely, too. We'll find out. The, um, <clears throat> this sort of dualism, that the, the mind-body dualism, uh, is a default setting, even as early as five months. So um, he, he then uh, got into sort of this theory of mind uh, where our idea... Uh, in our heads that um, we can understand what someone else is thinking. We ascribe beliefs, desires, and intentions to them. And we really have no interface with them. So it's all kind of based on, on us and, and these neurons that, that um, you know, the, these mirror neurons he was talking about where he raises a hand and uh, that, that motor strip lights up. Yeah, and making ours, you want to raise your hand as well. Right. So we just inhibit it and that's why our hand doesn't raise up. But it, they're these mirror neurons. And he, and he showed a couple of different, um, just eyes. And from the eye gaze alone, he said we can discern 212 different emotional states. And I had no idea that we had 212 different emotional states. Neither did I, but let me ask you this. When he showed the eyes, were you able to pick out an emotional state? I got them both right, yeah. I didn't. I just kind of glanced at it, and I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to be seeing? There's a guy staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd pop, he popped up the first one. And I'm sitting there, and the second one pops up, and I'm like, all right, let's see. It looks like he's thinking, no, he's angry. Shoot. <laughs> so that confirms uh, something that I've always believed about you, that you have no empathy. Well, you have no mirror neurons. I would like to point out <laughs> that he even stated in his study that women were more likely to pick up on these uh, images than men. Therefore, I would like to point out that you are very in touch with your feminine side. Well, thank you. Yeah, That's, a, com so. That's yeah. a compliment. All right, so uh, he moves on to neuroimaging evidence. And this was kind of fascinating. This I was actually very <clears throat> fascinated to see. I've actually seen a little bit of this, but this was fascinating. I believe the study he's referring to um, was done by Sam Harris, one of the new atheists. Yeah. Basically, they put people into uh, functional MRIs, which um, uh, it, it, they tag like a glucose molecule, and um, wherever in the brain is using the most glucose, it lights up on this functional MRI. So um, that means it's kind of churning and using the most energy. So what they did is they read paired statements, and they asked if uh, people agreed or disagreed, and, and they looked at the MRIs while they're thinking about this. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, uniform patterns arose uh, with the same places in the brain lighting up per person. Yeah. Um, 
these areas were localized in networks that, that process the theory of mind, you know, intent and emotion, and abstract semantics and, and imagery. So it's processing language and your idea of what other people are thinking. These were ordinary people. They weren't um, religious monks or people who dedicated their lives to religion. Um, it demonstrates that the components of religious beliefs are served actually by well-known neural circuitry. So, so his theory that they're hijacked, these, these mechanisms already existed and they're hijacked, uh, I think it is um, supported by this. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it makes me think of the flagellum, how it's got the whip tail versus the bacteria, which has an injection system. It's just a, an adaptation. Right. Or um, what I thought was uh, our tongue and our vocal cords were present long before we had um, developed language. Very um, true. Very true. So uh, language was kind of uh, hijacking. It's called an exaptation. <laughs> it's uh, adapting using existing structures. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, this um, religiosity is actually integrated in, in brain networks that are, that are used uh, primarily for social cognition, for, for our um, ability to interact. And he, he talked about this also uh, where he said, you know, we're, we're this kind of last remaining hominid. We left Africa and conquered all these different places, and the most complicated set of things we had to deal with were each other. <laughs> we had to figure out what other people were thinking and how they were thinking and anticipate their actions um, based upon body language and, and eye gaze and that sort of thing. And so we developed these amazingly complicated neural circuits to do that. And I think a lot of it comes down to survival once again. Because you're out there and you're this new hominid race and you are competing against those around you, not only for breeding rights, because I'm sure it was still very animalistic where women were concerned, but with breeding rights, with hunting rights, with domination. I mean, we are still looking at almost halfway between humans and the animal kingdom, so there is going to be a dominant male, just like there's a dominant male in a lot of human interacting groups. So, I mean, I think a lot of this is just based off of survival. We developed this for survival purposes, even within our own groups. Absolutely. Um, so this supports theories that, that religions uh, actually originally arose from these ordinarily evolved cognitive mechanisms that, that, that were dedicated initially to social interaction, and they were just co-opted by it. Um, and very, very easily, actually, because they're the same ideas. Yeah, it's 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 a very easy jump to go from man to God because I mean God looks like us. All He is is more powerful, and He takes care of us. The Father caretaker. It's just yeah. one quick leap. Yeah, it's kind of what Celsus was attacking Christianity for. <laughs> they don't have this sophisticated idea of um, you know one abstract, unaffable, un unimaginable, yeah. complicated God. They have this dude with a beard who lives in the clouds um, who uh, has feet and hands and, and gets tired <laughs> angry and, and sorry about what he's done and all this stuff um, it's a uh, little yeah a little less well developed yeah to the that. to the Greek mind very very primitive but again has the advantage of being minimally counterintuitive so this guy um, thinks that uh, uh, the idea of the soul the spirit, arose from uh, dead bodies because they, they pose this conflict between the theory of mind and your sort of natural kind molecules. You think there's this 
dead body. It's not breathing. The chest isn't going up and down. But I can still remember the person. In my head, I can still converse with this person. You know, like you said, you know, the guy sending text to his friend. Yeah. So it's easy to see again how that um, idea where, and that's probably where burying came from, right? We need to, first of all, get rid of this dead dude. Yeah, because he's <laughs> stinking up the place, calling in animals, disease, because, I mean, it's real simple to see that dead bodies around people are getting sick. Right. So, you know, if it were just getting rid of illness, you would um, throw them off in a forest or you'd burn yeah. them. Um, but no, we have evidence from tens of thousands of years ago about ritual burying. You, you have these people who are carefully placed. They have, are buried with beads and um, weapons and objects that were important to them in lifetime. So there's clearly a ritual. And if they thought that the soul didn't continue, why would they bother? Why wouldn't they keep the weapons? Why wouldn't they keep the beads? Um, Pharaoh in Egypt, buried with <laughs> everything. Yeah, everything he owned. Everything but the crown. <laughs> rooms and rooms of gold and, and wealth and stuff that could have gone to better use. Yeah. Uh, and I see a lot of this having to do with respect for the person. Because obviously, if you're looking at this dead body and you're thinking, I remember him when he was alive, where did he go? And you're thinking, well, he's still here. He's just kind of hovering around me. His soul has passed on sure. somewhere. I don't want to insult this person. And again, it's that conflict. It's the tension. It's the cognitive dissonance between uh, the fact that this is no longer that person. <laughs> this is merely a collection of um, dead molecules. It's yeah. inactive now. This is protein that's breaking yeah. apart. Yeah. The tension between that, that this dude is clearly dead and gone. Um, and your memories of him and, and your idea of life. If, if you really, really believed that this is just a husk and an object, then you wouldn't care uh, about what he thinks or, or respecting him at all because that is no longer him. I guess that the, him is gone. Yeah, I guess that would explain why I've always told my family that when I die, just rent a helicopter, fly me up the, in the mountains and kick me out so the animals can eat me. Right. Um, my wife often asks me what kind of funeral I want. And I said, funeral ain't for me. It's for you. Yeah. Um, go ahead and have whatever funeral you want. I don't care. I won't be there. Yeah. Although I do want my body preserved and stuck in a mausoleum. and um, That's our plan. With <laughs> iron rod in place of my spine that will pop up when people come in. Well, why do you think I went and learned electronics so I can build yes. us both a mausoleum? Excellent. My favorite part of the mausoleum plan that Charlie and I have is we're going to have magnetics in the ground. And when people walk in, one will pop on and little iron pebbles will roll across the ground. An air conditioner will kick on to instantly drop the temperature. <laughs> and if they walk close enough, Charlie's body is going to sit up, bolt upright and his eyeballs are going to pop out. I'm sure it's totally legal. Um, you know, just put a, you know, put a dollar in the mausoleum thing <laughs> and, say, you know, and then it'll all start. It'll that, be perfect. That, want to see a real dead body who's possessed? Watch this. Exactly. I mean, they have it with the... Um, the, the plasticized version of the body works, right? Yeah, Why exactly. can't I do it in a mausoleum? Exactly. Uh, even though your wife plans on burying you, I plan on digging you up and sticking a rod up your spine. Oh, bury me? Cremate me. Screw oh. the coffin. Dude, come on. If you're cremated, how am I supposed to stick a rod up your spine? <laughs> That's true. I went to all that electronics training for nothing. Thank so, you very much. Where were we? Um, <laughs> the soul. The soul, yes. Um, the soul is a minimally counterintuitive idea that clearly comes from um, the theory of mind and, and our idea of um, people's 
um, essence persisting beyond the death of the body. And the most amazing thing, I think above giving up on God, above uh, turning atheist, I think the biggest thing to going atheist is giving up on that idea of a soul. I mean, people have a very, very big problem about admitting there is nothing beyond this. Once I fade to dust, I am dust. And it's, I think it has a lot to do with this dead bodies concept, is people just cannot separate the idea that once you lay down and are dead, that's it. Your mind has ceased to exist. Yeah, that, that's a hard thing to give up. Uh, for me, it was, uh, that part was fairly easy. I mean, uh, you know, like Mark Twain said, we, I hadn't existed for millions of years before now, and it didn't bother me none. Yeah. Uh, not existing afterwards. Um, Ain't going to bother me none either. Right, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be gone. i got to admit, I, I've always liked Mark Twain's reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... The bigger part for me was not being able to see people. Like, you go to a funeral and then people are always saying, Don't worry, uh, you'll <laughs> see them again sometime. And even after I had, had um, turned atheist, you know, that idea that, that you'd be able to see them again sometime is um, so compelling. Very hard to give up. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit, that was that was difficult for me as well. Just the concept that... I mean, my own demise, that doesn't bother me any. It was just that idea that when somebody died, you wouldn't see them again. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, that's all there is. But uh, you get past it. Um, certainly, it's not... Um, it's not a, a complete roadblock. You just step right. around it. It's a little hump. Right. It's, it's a little depressing, but um, it's reality, right? Yeah. Reality is depressing. Sorry. Oops. Yeah, life's tough, and then you die. <laughs> so he spends most of the rest of the lecture talking about the various cognitive mechanisms. Um, a lot of these were drilled into my head during my behavioral science rotation in medical school. Transference, where you base uh, current relationships on past relationships. It kind of gives us a grammar for the conduct of relationships. We um, use this, so what we do is we you know, you go out with a girl, uh, you have certain experiences with her, and you take those experiences and you transfer them to the next relationship. So I won't make that mistake again, <laughs> assuming it may not even be a mistake in the next relationship. But, but you transfer this stuff onto your current partner. Um, and uh, not just with girlfriends, but with brothers, sisters, friends, and that sort of thing. We tend to transfer these ideas. And, and we form this this uh, grammar, right, for... for um, how we conduct our relationships based on past events. Oh, very much so. There should be a little disclaimer that says um, past performance is not indicative of future success. <laughs> <laughs> I think that should be tattooed across somebody's chest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because going along these lines, uh, one of the most interesting things he brought up was the fact that in religion, especially Christianity, they love to throw up Jesus on the cross the empathy that is, is raised from this. And I can remember this, this one particular time in church where I'm sitting, I'm, I'm probably 18, 19 years old, I'm sitting with the older elders, as they called them, and they flip off all the lights, they, they pull in a TV, and they turn on the TV, and they watch as this man portrays Jesus getting whipped, getting flogged, getting the thorn shoved onto his head, up to crucifixion, 
And then they turn back on the lights, they stop it, and they stand there. And they look around, and they, this almost verbatim said, Now I can see from all of your faces that this has touched you as it has touched me. And, I mean, it was just interesting, because I'm sitting back, there was kind of a... Touched me? It has repulsed me. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you show... Um... Someone being tortured on the rack or having thumbscrews applied. I mean, it's the exact same thing to me. Yeah. Well, see, that, that was kind of with me, too. And I was, I was sitting back there, and I'm looking around, observing people. And there were, there, these were grown men that were actually tearing up over yeah. this. Yeah. And I, I was watching this. And, I mean, it's just very true that religion loves to pound into us, especially Christianity, loves to pound into us that he suffered for us. Therefore, he made the ultimate sacrifice. He is the hero. And through this empathetic relationship, we are supposed to become closer to him. And, of course, I'm looking at this thinking, by God, why didn't you step in? I mean, he's, he's taken enough. Yeah, right. That goes under the um, category of hard-to-fake, costly, honest signals of commitment, Right. Um, did, did you see that picture where you had the guy who, down in Brazil, I think, who crucified himself? Yes. God almighty, that was, um, oh my God. He, he had, uh, nailed himself through the hand on the cross. Uh -huh. He had the thorns shoved onto his head, everything like that. You, you want to know what's interesting? I wasn't really looking at him when they showed that picture. I was looking at the photographers around him. Did you see how close they were getting to just get pictures of this? Oh, I, well, my eyes were squarely on that uh, iron nail through Going the guy's through the hand. hand. Yeah. yeah, see, that was where my eyes first went, but then I saw the photographers, and my fascination moved to the photographers. Because here you have a man who is in actual physical torment, yeah. and these photographers we're leaning in very closely snap, snap, to snap, snap, snap. every <laughs> single instance of it. And that, to me, was more concerning this hard-to-fake, uh, honest signals of commitment that these photographers trying to get those, those moments of commitment yeah. was more interesting to me than the retard who was having himself nailed to a piece of wood. I was trying to convince myself that it was a fake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I hope... I hope that they did not put him up um, upright because oh, it would, the nail was through his hand. And that would rip that, right that would have ripped right through. That would not have supported his weight. Um, you need to do it through the wrist. The wrist bones um, would actually support it through. Uh, and, and often, if they did it through the hand, they'd, they'd tie with a rope yep. to keep him up there. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is they were using construction nails on this guy that they were nailing to the cross. So they needed actual bigger nails if they really wanted him to stay yeah. up there. Yeah, if he really wanted to be crucified, he'd have to um, ha have uh, like, nails through both of his ankles, right? Um, yep. To get him back on the crossbeam. But anyway, um, these these kind of hard to fake, costly, honest signals of commitment. Um, uh, he this guy believes were the origination of religious rituals. Um, so when you have uh, the monks that, who are whipping themselves, you know the flagellating monks. Yeah. Um, that uh, you see those guys and you say, wow, you know, they're really deeply committed. <laughs> if somebody believes this much in something that they are actually causing themselves damage, right. that means that it must be true. Right. Uh, he thinks also they arise from kind of threat response systems. Um, your, your, 
your own endorphins that, that respond to threat, um, the, the cleansing in order like baptism, uh, and, and the, you know, pain is the cleanser type thing. Um, they enable and elicit the scrutiny of hard to fake honest signals of commitment. Um, they communicate the intentions of belief. They are used to inculcate doctrines and forge alliances. You know, you feel, um, together if you all, you know, it's the same thing, you know, if, if, um, you are persecuted in my name, right. Um, you're blessed. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, these alliances are forged uh, through kind of communal suffering and, and ritual. Um, the original goals of protection, right, with these rituals, um, you'd, you'd sacrifice an animal or cause yourself pain so that the gods would see that you are committed and, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> see that you were you. willing to work for what yeah, you wanted. They protect yeah. you. Um, sometimes you, you'd do this to cordon off protected spaces so you wouldn't be injured. Um, Egypt did this. They, they draw little lines around their beds so the scorpions wouldn't come wouldn't in. Wouldn't come in, yeah. Um, you'd think they'd build fences or something. <laughs> <laughs> Put um, up like a net. And they? They, ex they exploit what he called the gestalt law of the whole so that um, you know you, you feel stronger inside of a group than you do on your own. Well, which comes back down to survival. I mean, this is flocking instinct. Yeah. You flock together for survival. Right. So, um, so that those are the kind of hard to fake, costly, honest signals of commitment. Uh, going back to the transference, where where this kind of grammar of conduct, those things, um, your anticipation of expectations, your parental transferences, those are hijacked by religion um, in, in ways I think we've already discussed. Yeah. This childhood credulity and deference to authority. He mentioned a, uh, an experiment that actually showed that um, our deference to authority, our, our willingness to submit. Uh, it actually is a lot more deeply ingrained than we would like to believe. And, and the excuses given at the Nuremberg trials for Nazi Germany were, almost to a man, I was following orders. Yeah, we we did what we were told to do, even though it was an atrocity. We did what we were, we were told to do. Right. And I mean, in all honesty, I can kind of see it. I was in the military, and the one thing about the military, and the one thing I always got in trouble for in the military, and especially for being a bit of a troublemaker, is that they expect you to do what they say without thought. And I saw this with a lot of people in the military, and usually the ones that did really well in the military were the ones that leaned towards that, that authority, the ones who didn't bucket, who didn't say why, didn't question. They just did what they were told because authority told them to. Right. Um, very similar to religion, right? Yeah. Um, the idea of reciprocal altruism, where someone does something good for us, and so we owe them something good in return, uh, hijacked by religion. You know, Jesus died for you. You don't want to waste that, do you? Obviously. Uh, look not. at how much he suffered. You owe him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't ask him to suffer for me. I would have stopped it. Well, um, wait, wait, wait. You did ask him. He's there for us. In the in the pre-existence. In the pre-existence. <laughs> <laughs> um, romantic love, um, co-opted by religion. You know, you should take this and, and, and love Jesus and, and God for all the stuff they've done. Well, I mean, he actually brought <clears throat> up something very interesting with a with a lot of the, <clears throat> the early nuns and such who who actually flocked because they had this idea of Jesus, and that that idea became the man that they would love to love. I mean, it's it's like a romance novel to them. Yeah. Right. These, because um, <clears throat> he's the perfect uh, husband. Yeah, perfect husband. He's caring, he's doting. Loves you no matter what. And he'll take care of you. Never I mean, beats you. I mean, never puts you down. <laughs> if, Unconditional love. 
If you're hungry, he'll rip open a loaf and feed 3,000 of your family. If you're hungry, he'll enable you to grow your own plants and <laughs> feed yourself. Hey, if you want to get drunk, <laughs> hey, we got water in the corner. There's some wine for you. Uh, moral feeling systems um, proven by experiment to rise as early as year one. And again, seen in primates as well. Yeah. Uh, these are kind of hijacked to, to lend plausibility to gods. You know, how, again, how often today do you see in debates, well, you're borrowing the language of Christianity for your moral systems. That's, you know, unethical of you. How can you, how can you even speak of morals without uh, reference to God? I mean, it's ridiculous. I, like, these guys have no idea of non-authoritarian moral systems. The yeah. whole history of philosophy. It, 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 it makes me groan every time. But it also reminds me of my brother, who uh, I believe it was discussing with you, where you were asking him why he chose Mormonism. And he actually said that he went out, searched through Mormonism, or searched through all other religions, discovered that Mormonism fit his moral co code the most. Yeah. And I love your response to this, and so I'm going to let you respond. Well, I said, um, first of all, it's extremely coincidental that you <laughs> looked through all these different systems and, and ended up with the very one you were raised in. Um, but, but deeper to the point, uh, if you have a moral system before you look at this stuff, you don't need any of that stuff to give you a moral system. You already have it. Screw religion. Go with your own moral system. Yeah. It preceded it. And that's something that I've actually been sat down with as my family has tried to convince me to come back to God is, well, if, if you don't have to pay for anything beyond this world, then why don't you go out and shoot somebody? Why don't you go too. out? And... Uh, as if somehow, if these guys... Uh, lost their Christianity and Mormonism, immediately they go out and rape and murder. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. We live in a, in a society that depends on certain social structures. Um, if I commit evil, first of all, I'll probably be caught. Um, I'm not very good at, <laughs> at raping and pillaging and murdering. And I've seen um, Charlie try. He's not very good at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll be in jail. I mean, there are other reasons not to. Um, but but the main reason really is causing harm. You, yeah. you know, you see the effects of harm on other people. You know the effects of harm on yourself. Even animals naturally recoil from pain. And so uh, wouldn't that be the basis of your moral system? Don't inflict unnecessary harm. Yeah. Uh, and you don't need a God to tell you that. No. But religion says, oh, hey, the only way we could get uh, the, these morals, because they're transcendent, they're outside of us, is from a transcendent being. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't make any sense. And, and, Not oh. to mention that in Christianity, by and large, God is portrayed as a deontologist, right? He has a set yeah. of, a group of principles. In Mormonism, he's a utilitarian. <laughs> he, he maximizes the good, right? Um, yep. I mean, there that sentence... In the Book of Mormon, in was it First Nephi, where he says, "Better that one man perish, perish than an entire, entire nation, nation dwindle in unbelief." Yeah, that's totally out of the Book of Utilitarianism. You know, and and what's fascinating to me is almost verbatim, uh, one of my brothers said to me that he wished he actually wished that there wasn't something after this because that way he wouldn't have to be stood accountable for some of the things he'd done. And I'm looking at him, thinking to myself. Well, hell, I've had me a pretty good life. I would gladly stand up and say, these are the things I've done. You want to punish me? Go ahead. Plus, he created me in the first place. Yep. It's not like I'm surprising him. 
This was <laughs> how it was created. Hey, God knows everything. You created me like Punish this. Punish yourself. Well, you already did, I guess. Yeah. That's probably why. Damn it. I created all these evil people. Let's just throw them down on Earth and let them have that. <laughs> Speaking of... Altruistic punishment. Um, your own willingness to punish social cheats at a cost to yourself. So you haven't done anything wrong, but you're willing to punish them uh, at a cost to yourself uh, for the greater good of, of society. You remember Serenity? Yep. That kind of assassin character? Yeah. Uh, where he said, you know, the, the paradise is not for people like me. I'm not going to go in there. I'm he's, not going to be there. He's I'm... punishing himself so that other people, it's altruistic punishment. Um, and you can see how social terrorism, suicide bombing, is minimally counterintuitive from that step. <laughs> yeah. You go out there and blow yourself up. You blow yourself up for, for the betterment of yep. God's kingdom, and you will be... See, I, I love the rewards after this world. I mean... Oh, yeah. Uh, one of... I, Pay us 10% now, and we'll give you so... It was such a mansion in the afterlife. Yeah. Such a scam. Well, I mean, it, it was like... I don't really want to mention who it was, but somebody <laughs> on your family uh, that your your kind of family sent with me on a yep. vacation, sort of. I was sitting down discussing with him, and the reason why they asked me to to go out with him is because he was kind of closing himself up, and I'm not exactly the type of person that likes to be locked up. I like to go out and do things, but uh, I was sitting down with him, and we were we were driving up in the mountains to uh, to do a good hike out in the wilderness, and as I'm talking with him, I was asking him why he doesn't go out and do these things that he wants to do, because he wanted to be a pilot, he wanted to be a stuntman, so on and so forth. And so I kept asking him and, and just wouldn't let up on why he just didn't go out and do it, because it didn't make sense. If you want to do something, you do it. And he gave me the most fascinating answer I have ever heard. He basically said to me that this world is something that you just have to plod through that you just have to be good in this world and get through it, and then in the next world is where you will get the things that you have always dreamed of and always wanted. That is so depressing. I was flabbergasted <clears throat> at this type of thought process. I, mean, I, I just could not fathom sitting there thinking, okay, I have to do these things, and then when I'm done, I've done all my work, then I will get my reward. And in the next life, I will. A, a lot of the um, Abrahamic religions will do that. They will denigrate this life uh, in favor of the next one. The, the next life is, is of primary importance. This one's secondary. Um, Judaism itself actually doesn't. Uh, <laughs> Islam and Christianity do. Judaism um, has a long history of, of uh, having only punishment in this life. That's why they would punish you to seven generations. Yeah. Um, they'd take away your children. You, you get punished and rewarded in this life. If you were good, you'd be um, rich. Um, anyway, uh, two more things. Uh, empathy. We talked about the mirror neurons. And they use this sort of this empathy to induce guilt and obligation. You, you say, Jesus again suffered for you. How could you not? You're obligated to him for that, uh, for what he did for you. How many times have you heard that at church? Oh, you have no idea how many. And then you kind of keep these belief systems um, through a, a number of ways. Motivated reasoning, where we doubt what we don't like. Um, so we're motivated to believe in what we do like, you know. It comes the, the, to that gray area that you and I talk about where religion is concerned. Yeah, the, the heaven's wonderful. Um, we want to believe that we'll meet our, our relatives again in the afterlife, and so we're yeah. motivated for it. We have confirmation bias, and I've seen this over and over and over again, where uh, you select the evidence that confirms your beliefs, and you completely neglect the evidence that contradicts it. 
Um, that that is a that's evolutionary kind of built into us because we make rapid decisions and then we rationalize them later. <laughs> uh, but that rapid decision is very important. Uh, and kin psychology, you know, there's a reason why we call each other's brothers, brothers and sisters, sisters, right? And holy fathers. Yeah, because yeah. we we have that reciprocal um, relationship between our um, brothers and sisters, our blood, our kin. Um, anyway, to, to kind of wrap it all up, uh, he, he does make a strong case for religion as a um, byproduct of cognitive mechanisms for social interaction. Oh, very much so. And I mean, one of the thoughts that went through my head where this was concerned was concerning my aunt. My grandmother died uh, a short time ago. and uh, It's okay. I, you'll see her again. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Well, my aunt was uh, one of the primary caretakers of her. She was in there visiting her. I mean, very commendable for her dedication to my grandmother. Just after the death, my mother was telling me an experience that my aunt had where she was asleep, she was dreaming, and my grandfather, who died a couple years back, actually came to her, thanked her for all she had done for my grandmother while she was here, and told her that everything was all right, that my grandmother was going to a, a new and a better place. And because of this dream... That's bad news for you because we're going to be in the Telestial Kingdom. So she's going to have to visit you. You can't go up. She's going to have to come down. Well, I already told everybody I was making a road system so they could come down to play poker. <laughs> <clears throat> but I mean, it, it's just... So this dream. This, this dream, it, it all stems from this want, this, this desire to feel like you have actually done something good. I mean, my grandmother, towards the end, was, I mean, her Alzheimer's had kicked in so much that last time I saw her, she actually thought I was one of her children and that it was probably back in the 1940s still. So, I mean, it, it just, this dream that came off of her desires to know everything was going to be all right and just the dreams of her mind automatically went to the fact that God exists, that spirits exist, so on and so forth. And I sat there and thought to myself, well, why is it you aren't taking all of your other dreams and looking on them as the same thing? Why are you specifying this one dream? Yeah, exactly. So, anyway. That, that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Next week, because of um, a certain thread on comments, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go and review the pros and cons for the actual historical existence of Jesus. Yes, yes. Actually, uh, due to uh, some of the comments, and uh, it, it's actually a fascinating subject in and of itself. It's something that we've been talking about doing for some time. But because of the comments made through the thread, we've decided that we ought to just sit down and have an entire podcast concerning this. That way it's easier to lay out than typing it up. Yeah, I think, um, I think it'll be very interesting, and who knows, um, I might even learn something. Um, that's impossible. You know everything. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week.